Hello again from Cleveland.com here with a new episode of This Week in the CLE, the weekday podcast discussion about the coronavirus. If you are here for our normal weekly episode, we switched it up. We've gone to Monday through Friday, half-hour episodes to deal with COVID-19. Wednesday was a newsy day, and we keep fielding more questions from you about this crisis. We're here to talk about them. I'm Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, on the line with editors Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and Chris Wernowski. How much more have you all been cooking as you shelter in place? I made my Caesar salad dressing yesterday, and uh, so now we're out of lettuce. That's the one thing you can't just go to the grocery store and get more. <laughs> I, I've been cooking less, actually. I'm, I'm kind of jealous of the people who are using this idle time at home to try new recipes. But but hey, I am happy to have a job to do. I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I started pickling the the minute we were getting <laughs> I've made like I've made sauerkraut. I've pickled peppers and save that. I want someone to get back to the mm. office. But this shelter in place thing is getting old in a hurry, and it looks like we're going to have another month of it. We're starting to see, I think, some signs of depression, especially among some readers who have sending who have sent in some notes. How are you all holding up? Are you all doing okay? Well, I think. Um... Amy Acton had it right yesterday when she called it Groundhog Day because it does. I we lose track of the days; it right. just feels the same. If I don't get outside at least once a day, I'm. It's not a good thing. But otherwise, I'm fine. Yesterday ended up being kind of a like like one of the first days where it was kind of tough, and and not just not from a work perspective or anything, just kind of just from like a personal and just, I, I mean, we're all going to have these days, I think. And I think, you know, I think it's important for people to understand that like, it's okay to feel that way because it's weird and it's hopeless. And we're all sort of dealing with this in, in our own weird ways. Well, maybe conversations like this will help us feel like we're actually engaging. So let's get started. Why are more women than men in Ohio getting infected with the coronavirus? With almost everywhere in the world seeing more men getting the virus than women, the tables have turned in Ohio and women are now outpacing men. What's remarkable is that in the early days in Ohio, men were infected at about double the rate of women. But as of Wednesday, we saw 51% of the cases in Ohio were women. In Italy, the cases break down as 55% men. What's happening in Ohio? Why did it change? I'll say up front, we don't have the answer, but that won't stop our speculation. Jane Cahoon, I saw data guru Rich Exner suggesting to you yesterday that it has to do with nursing. Well, that's one explanation. But first, we, we always have to say that the data is faulty because we don't have enough testing. But that said, a, a number of healthcare workers have been tested and about one in five of Ohio's cases involve healthcare workers. And nursing is a female-dominated profession. Women make up 93% of Ohio's nurses. So that could account for some of this. It also should be noted that Rich found when you look at more severe cases in Ohio, that that trend doesn't really hold up. Like of the 679 people who've been hospitalized, 56% are male. And among the 65 deaths, 60% are men. What else could it be, though? Does anybody have a theory? And, and why did it change? I mean, we started overwhelmingly male, and and now it's flip-flop. Laura Johnston, Chris Warnowski, do you have any theories? Well, I, I think that Rich debunked my one theory that I started looking at about smoking. I thought maybe there were more women smokers in Ohio. There are not. 
there are more women in Ohio than men. Ohio is 51% female compared to 50.8% nationwide. And China has more men than women. But that doesn't show why it would switch. Um, maybe men, women are just living longer than men and this hits old people more. But that's not a definitive answer. Chris? I, I suspect that it has to do with the fact that they started prioritizing the testing of nurses and frontline people. I, I think we had that initial surge where everybody was getting in line and getting tested, which, you know, I think would probably give us a more balanced look of who was seeking help, which is, you know, it's different because it kind of flies in the face of a lot of old theories about, you know, like men being stubborn and not seeking help for medical problems. And, you know, so so if, you know, our initial numbers were men were seeking, you know, testing in droves, then maybe that all flipped when they started prioritizing getting the people who are dealing with the sick tested as well. And if we start doing wide scale testing, especially with this antibody test, maybe we will uh, end up seeing the, the numbers go back to what the rest of the world has seen. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Can I get the coronavirus by visiting public parks? Why are the people who run the parks suddenly closing parts of them down and urging all sorts of caution? Or at Johnston, we suddenly have the Cleveland Metro Parks and Summit County deputy sheriffs taking steps to make the parks safer. Let's start with what the Metro Parks are doing. The Cleveland Metro Parks are shutting down popular destinations like Edgewater and Euclid Beach Piers, the Fort Hill Stairs and the Rocky River Reservation, and Squires Castle on the uh, east side to keep people from congregating. So far, though, they have put the docks in for boats at Edgewater Marina. It's less formal in Summit County. What's happening there? So sheriff deputies are enforcing the rules in parks and playgrounds. Remember, playgrounds are closed. And the health department is warning golfers to not ride in carts together. And the deputies in Summit County are basically walking around looking for kids that are that are congregating and saying, don't do that. This gets back to that fear people have about breathing the air of others, something we keep being told is not really a threat when you're outside. And it brings us back to that central question of the week. Should we wear masks? And we haven't really asked the question, if I go to a park where there are a lot of people, should I wear masks? But, you know, I suppose that's something we should explore. Anybody? I'm heading toward the mask wearing. Even if you wear a mask, you should still stay six feet away from people. But it makes sense if you're going to have a mask to wear it in a crowded area that would include parks where there's a lot of people. It's this week in the CLE from Cleveland.com. How will the coronavirus compare to other major events that caused a lot of death? With 100,000 to 240,000 deaths predicted in the United States, we're wondering where we will stand in comparison to wars and the other things that killed lots of Americans. Chris Ranowski, reporter Bob Higgs, put together a a pretty big comparison. Where will COVID-19 stand as a killer of Americans? Uh, Somewhere right between World War I and World War II. If you're a history buff, you probably know that the American Civil War led to the death of three quarters of a million Americans. And the 1918 influenza pandemic led to 675,000 deaths. But if you keep going down the list, uh, World War II, a little over 400,000 people, um, Americans died in, in that. And that includes like 292,000 people who died in battle. But World War I, we had about 116,000 people 
die in that military conflict. So I feel and and you know, we you can compare it to things like nine eleven where there was, you know, over three thousand and the Well I, well let's talk about that though. Things mm-hmm. other than wars kill lots of people. Have we had any weather event or terrorism event that killed as many people? No. So this is a big one. You know, we talk about a number like two hundred and forty thousand and it's this big number. But that's two hundred and forty thousand grandmothers and and dads and husbands and wives. There's a lot of grief in a number that big. Breaks down to more than four thousand per state on average. And it's gonna be our job to kind of tell the stories of those people. I think part of what is sort of weighing on the psyche of a lot of people is that every every major death thing is, you know, you can either attribute it to like nature. So you have Katrina or you have what happened in Puerto Rico and and it's easy to sort of view that and say, well, that's not here. That's distant. And, you know, all of the wars that we've had, you know, since 9-11 and all of the military conflicts that we've been in, it's all it's all away from here. It's not in the country. And so it's easy to sort of put some mental distance between yourself and and the death that occurs in those things. And this is not that, you know, this is you're going to see your neighbors and you're going to see people in your family and you're going to have friends and and you're going to start hearing a lot of anecdotal stories in your own life about people who are affected by this. You know, I mean, you know, a lot of grief. There's just going to be, I mean, it's going to be profound and we're, and we don't see it yet. We're, we're still on that side of the curve where it's coming and what it looks like in another month. It's going to be pretty frightening. It's this week in the CLE. Why are the lab tests so slow for the coronavirus in Ohio? What is the plan for Ohio hospitals on the coronavirus? Governor Mike DeWine made some news during his daily briefing Wednesday on both of those fronts. Jane Cahoon, your statehouse team covered them. Let's start with the lab tests. DeWine and Ohio Health Director Amy Acton took a pretty aggressive step to speed them up. Yes, they've ordered hospitals that don't do their own testing, which is the majority in the state, to send their specimens to one of four hospitals in the state that that are turning around the test quickly. That's Ohio State, Wexner Medical Center, Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, and Metro Health. So three out of the four are up here in Northeast Ohio. The private companies, such as LabCorp, are taking five days or so to turn around these tests, which the governor said just isn't acceptable when uh, treatment decisions need to be made quickly. Yeah, people could die before they get the results. Do we have any idea why the private labs move so slowly compared to the state labs and the hospitals? Clearly. Uh, yesterday, by yesterday, DeWine had worked it out with the hospitals to take over more of the tests. But I, I'm, I'm not understanding why the hospitals can be so much more quick than labs that that's their only job. Well, for some reason, they, they have just built up their capacity to do this and they can do it quickly. And the Department of Health also does this in-house testing and they've added a third shift of people to do the testing and they test healthcare workers and so forth, and they can also do it really quickly. This is Laura Johnston. I just wanted to add in that one theory we've heard about the private labs is that they're still doing employment, pre-employment testing. And some of the places that are hiring, like warehouse workers, uh, they would normally get drug screening beforehand. So it's one theory that they're the reason they're taking so long. I know, but if I'm a lab, right, and this is the industry for the next two months where there's going to be this huge demand for testing Wouldn't you do, wouldn't I do what the hospitals did and and figure out a way to ramp up? They just lost all their business. They just just went out the door. I I don't get it because they'll end up having to to lay people off. 
So, Jane, speaking of hospitals, we went from eight to three zones, and I'm confused. Uh, we just were told we have eight zones, what, three days ago. Now we have three. What's this plan? Okay, let me help you, Chris. The state already, <laughs> the state already was divided into eight regions called preparedness regions. That's been before this happened. But now they've consolidated those regions into these three zones with Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati at the center of each one. Uh, so hospitals that normally compete against each other have been working together on this because obviously it's so important. And as DeWine explained, there, there are a couple of variables at play here. One is the capacity and the other is the level of care. So if a hospital is full or isn't equipped to provide the level of care that somebody needs, they may have to go to a bigger hospital, probably in one of these uh, big metro areas. All right, but I still don't get it. Cause, I mean, those, those zones are giant, right? So are you really going to have somebody in Toledo with the coronavirus coming all the way to Cleveland for treatment when they have hospitals in Toledo? I, I just, what's the real need to do this, right? I mean, if, if you get sick, you're in Cleveland, you're not going to go to Toledo. You're going to be in Cleveland. Why was the, what's the need to do this? I guess just because a lot of the small hospitals can't properly care for people. And also people may end up like in a college dorm, a convention center, or a hotel, depending on how they build up the capacity. But we still need to get details of this plan, which DeWine said are still coming. Yeah, I, I, you haven't cleared up my confusion. <laughs> Sorry. You, I don't get it. I get the small hospital thing. I get that that there are little hospitals in between here in Toledo that probably can't do this and you want to have them feeding people somewhere. I just don't, but the, the eight zones did that. I didn't get the need for this. You mentioned a day or so ago, but this new plan brings up the question anew about insurance. If I get sent to a hospital that's outside my network, I still get covered as if it was in my network, right? Right. As we reported the other day, since March 20th, insurance companies have been under an order from the Ohio Department of Insurance, and that makes sure that insured Ohioans are going to pay in-network prices, even if they're being treated out of network. I don't know. It still feels like we're preparing for something big that's on the horizon, but we're, we're not there yet. We've talked about it for so long, but it just feels like we're not seeing it yet. Um, and when it comes, hospitals will be the center of, of everything. We'll see. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Can I go into a store without fear of catching the coronavirus? This is a question that is on many minds. Wednesday saw some news that should make people feel both more safe and almost less so. There have been a lot of developments in one case. Chris Warnowski, you worked with reporter Kaylee Remington on the story about some stores trying to be more safe. Yeah, um, Costco and Home Depot have actually decided to uh, alter their hours and and up their social distancing practices. Uh, I believe Costco has said that they're going to limit the number of people that are allowed in the store at one time, which is interesting. I noticed that Trader Joe's had already started doing this a while ago where you would basically, they were only allowing like 10 people into the store at a time. So how did that work outside? So, so say I go to Trader Joe's and they're at capacity and there's 10 more people that want to get in. Do they have them lined up on tape stripes six feet apart outside the door or do people sit in their car and get waved in? I don't think they, they, they did have a line, but I don't know that they did tape stripes at that point. 
this was a couple, you know, this was early on in this process, but it's actually, you know, this is actually, it's a weird business model that they, they kind of stole from, from marijuana dispensaries, which actually limit the amount of people that are allowed in stores because it's a cash business and they, they worry about people overwhelming the store and then robbing them. Well, and, I had to go to a Home Depot on the weekend to get an electrical box for, for my mom's house. And it was, it was more crowded than I would have thought. And I, I felt it was difficult to, to want to go through that store and maintain the six feet. I and mean, I was, I was like a, a bumper car just bouncing off of everywhere, trying to stay away. So I get that this makes sense. I just don't see how it works. I guess we're going out today to find out how this works, to see what the stores are doing to have an orderly process to get in. But let's pivot to the, to the bad boy in this thing. Hobby Lobby, which had closed as a non-essential business, had tried to reopen all over the country and states started to force them to shutter. Although I do think I do wonder whether this is a political thing. But let's let's start, Jane Cahoon, with what happened with Hobby Lobby in Ohio. Well, when this was brought up at the governor's briefing on Wednesday, he he clearly looked concerned and started taking notes. And then we saw the attorney general, Dave Yost sending Hobby Lobby a cease and desist order. But now it appears that they have closed the stores again. People are not questioning Joanne Fabrics being open. The Joanne Fabrics says we provide the stuff to make masks, which everybody's doing, as we've talked about previously. But Hobby Lobby sells the same kind of stuff. Is this more politics? Hobby Lobby was involved in the infamous Supreme Court case to push back on Obamacare. So are people focused on Hobby Lobby for the wrong reasons? If they're selling the supplies to make masks, shouldn't they be open? Well, you're you're right about Hobby Lobby, but they seem to be more politically aligned with the Republican powers that be in Ohio. So I'm not getting that political angle. But I have well, to I'm say- talking I'm talking more about the outrage. I mean, when they said they were opening People came out of the woodwork to say, yeah, fie, fie, how dare you? Laura this Johnston. is Laura Johnston. I, I don't think they sell fabric. I don't have a Hobby Lobby near me, so I don't go there all the time. But And I could be wrong, but I don't think they sell fabric. So I think that might be the difference with them and Joanne's. We have gotten you know people emailing about Joanne's, but you're right about the furor over Hobby Lobby. I was working a couple weekends ago when a new Hobby Lobby opened in Perkins Township right outside of Sandusky. And people on Facebook were just livid saying, how dare they open during the coronavirus crisis? And I actually called their manager and I said, are you having grand opening festivities? And he said, no, because if they were having some big sale or like hot dogs in the parking lot, then they would definitely be violating uh, the order. But this, I don't believe the non-essential business order. I think that came the following day. But there have been people livid about Hobby Lobby for weeks now. Yeah, I just I wonder if it's if it's more politics than practical. It's this week in the CLE. What is Ohio doing to get masks, gloves, and other safety equipment doctors and nurses need to treat coronavirus patients? We actually have a new answer to this question. We've been talking about the shortage for weeks, if not longer. The federal government has not done what it is needed to supply masks and gloves to the medical providers. Ohio is about to hit its surge, and Jane Cahoon on Wednesday, Governor Mike DeWine did something about it. Yes, the governor announced a new effort that's called the Ohio Manufacturing Alliance to Fight COVID-19. It's an effort involving (laughs) the Ohio Manufacturing Extension Partnership, Jobs Ohio, the Ohio Hospital Association, 
and the Ohio Manufacturers Association. And they are going to help solicit and coordinate efforts to manufacture items like gloves and hospital gowns and face masks and other equipment that is in short supply right now. It's a huge list. I mean, some of it's not in short supply yet, but they think it will. And they want Ohio companies to make it. Does DeWine have any power to force companies to make it like the president does through his emergency powers? Or is this more of his appeal to our better angels to do the right thing for our neighbors? I think it's more of an appeal. He has a really good relationship with these groups. I think everybody's just working together on this and there's no need to get heavy handed about it. What's interesting about this is DeWine is taking matters into his own hands, not waiting for the federal government to fulfill its duty. It's a bold move. Is it an in-your-face move to the president? Chris Warnowski, I'm betting you have some thoughts on this. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's interesting is, I, you know, you read a story. There's a story that came out yesterday that said that even as the federal government is starting to get ventilators out into the communities, uh, a lot of them don't work. And, and so, you know, it's like, like one of the things that I talked about early on with this is that a a state by state approach is going to be problematic because we can't control what our neighbors do. And this thing doesn't know borders and that we needed a good federal approach. And I feel like in the absence of that, you know, DeWine is is coming out and sort of looking like the adult in the room, like his his press conferences are a, a stark contrast to what we see out of the federal administration. And, and so this, this felt like a, well, look, I, I don't see any help coming on the way. So let's try to figure out a way for us to do that and to, to get some of our manufacturers up and running, you know, I mean, well, and he's, and he's getting recognition. John Oliver, who basically said, I disagree with everything Mike DeWine stands for is doing a good job. A Sydney, Australia newspaper has written about DeWine. The BBC has profiled him. He's getting attention for doing it. I, it this was just his latest uh, pretty bold move. It's this week in the CLE. If Cuyahoga County could clear out the jail for the coronavirus, why couldn't it do it when inmates were dying? Reporter Adam Faris had one of the strongest stories of the month Wednesday when he chronicled how quickly criminal justice officials dramatically reduced the jail population because of fears of the coronavirus. But this story raised big questions. Chris Warnowski, let's start with the numbers and how they cut them so dramatically. So I, if, if people recall at the peak, there were something like 24 to 2,500 people in the jail, and it was a problem. It, it, it led to prolonged lockdowns of, of people who were in there. It led to really overwhelming work for the people that actually work in that facility. And, and then eventually it led to nine deaths that were a combination of suicides and, and drug overdoses. And in that time, there was a lot of hand wringing about, should we, you know, get these low level offenders out of there? You know, we have been writing and beating the drum on bail reform for something like four years. And, you know, for whatever reason, and whether it's ideological disagreements between the judges and the prosecutors and the and the public defenders, it never happened. And then but it's worse than that, because they said all through those four years, they wanted it to happen. And when people were dying, you know, Armin Budish and the and the judges and everybody else said they were doing their best to reduce crowding in the jail, to stop the red zoning that was putting pressure on people and possibly resulting in suicide. And they didn't do it, but this shows they actually could have. 
Yeah. And I mean, in at a very, I mean, within the span of three weeks, they cleared over, I think like a thousand people out of the jail and it's, and it's staggering. You know, when I saw that number, when Adam and Corey Schaefer brought that back to us, I was, I, I mean, it blew my mind. And I, in one of the early stories that we wrote about them trying to speed up their dockets and, and to get low level and nonviolent people out of the jail for fear of this, the public defender did say, I hope that maybe this can be something that is permanent. And, you know, you saw one of the leading municipal judges echo that in the Adam story that, you know, it's, I, I feel like what this is doing is really revealing that a lot of what the government tells us is impossible is possible, but they just, they don't know how to do it hastily if there isn't an emergency at their feet. Yeah. I, although I would have thought the eight deaths would be the eight deaths in a year would have been the emergency. Okay. So the question now is when this crisis ends, will they keep this up or will they get lazy again? And now that we and all the inmate advocates know that they can do it, will we put the proper pressure on them to keep doing it? Well, one thing that was pointed out in the story, which is going to be true, is that effectively a lot of court has been shut down. Police, you know, police departments are being told don't send people here for low level stuff. So problem with criminal justice is 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 that you're also at the mercy of what the police are doing. So, you know, you have police out patrolling and arresting a ton of people and, and bringing them to the jail. Well, how does the county control what a local police department does? And once they reopen court business, you know, you're going to see an influx of people who have been accused of crimes coming back through the courts, coming back through the jails. And so, you know, it's really going to take a conscious decision by court administrators, judges and prosecutors to decide, you know, does this person need to be in this jail? And well, and maybe maybe you're right. Maybe the answer is that they say at the jail. Hey, police departments, we're not taking them anymore. We're going to continue this practice of not taking your low-level misdemeanors. So don't bring them in. You deal with them. You know, there'd probably be a constitutional question about whether they can pull that off because they are the jail. But I, the pre I mean, the pressure is going to be on because they should have done this when people were dying. I mean, well, it, they, you know, there's the whole like, you know, they a lot of times when you talk about this, they hide behind the the law and they go, well, these are the statutes and they break the law. So this is what we have to follow. But if you go back and you take, you know, like a one mile view of this problem and, you know, I think that there's a lot that I think the legislature needs to look at in the way of, of the way that our criminal statutes are outlined. I mean, what we're doing is we're proving what they tell us is impossible is possible. And right. Right. And, and when this is over, there's going to be no more excuses. Right. And, and, and they, and, and because you can just point to this and say, look, you did it here and you can do it now. And, and, we'll, and, and we will have to keep doing that in the future. I think it's going to be on us to do our watchdog role. It's this week in the CLE. Where can I get more information on face masks for the coronavirus? Okay. I know we've been talking about masks all week. And I did say yesterday we would talk about unemployment today. And unemployment numbers are off the charts again as of today. And we have a great story by Sabrina Eaton on our site that explains exactly what you need to do to get unemployment. But we keep getting questions about masks, so we're going to talk about masks. Laura Johnston, reporter Bob Higgs, attempted to answer all of the mask questions that are out there in a big, long Q&A piece Wednesday. You're somebody that's actually made your own masks this week. So what did you learn from Bob's story that you did not know before? 
Well, I'm glad that I know now that I'm not supposed to wear a mask when I'm walking my dog or working in my garden because I'm by myself uh, and the outside air still distills any issue that you might have with breathing on other people. But I did make a mask, which I'll keep for when I go to the store or maybe talk to my neighbors on my driveway, six feet away, of course, or go to any crowded uh, parks. Anybody else? Uh, Jane Cahoon, Chris Warnowski, did you learn anything from the story about masks? Are you uh, rushing to get a mask? What what I learned was the importance of a good fit to a mask. And once you have it on, don't don't keep touching it or adjusting it because you're kind of defeating the purpose. I learned that I'm doomed because I can't stop touching my face. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you've got facial hair that makes that fit difficult, which, and, you know, many people, because they're working at home, are growing more facial hair. So, you know, maybe they don't have to get masks. Anyway, if it's a great piece by Bob Higgs. It really does uh, provide all the details anybody could want about it. Uh, and I think we'll be talking about masks next week. It's this week in the CLE. We're done today. There's just too much coronavirus news to fit, so we've gone a little bit long. Thanks to Chris, Jane, and Laura, and thank you for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll close out the week with another episode tomorrow. 